Would you please join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak this morning. As we listen to the prayers of the Son, would our hearts be moved by the Spirit to be one, even as you are one. Help us now, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, here at New Life Church, we exist to engage those who are disconnected from God so they delight in Him through Jesus. And we believe that the gospel creates community. And thus, our faith in Christ leads us to love and value one another. Perhaps those statements have been, you're familiar with them. Uh, They're available online in our identity booklet. Um, You may have a physical copy here. And this morning, as we conclude our mini-series on the church mission statement in identity, this morning we address our aim to connect. When we use this word, we primarily use it two different ways. Um, In our mission statement, we discuss this vertical connection that we have to God as we connect to him through Jesus. And we also use it as we talk about our vision for what the life of the church looks like as we connect to one another horizontally. And when I use that word this morning, connect, um, I'm, I'm referring not to some loose connection of your mom's third cousin's dog's nephew or something. I'm using it to describe an indissoluble union. You could, it's synonymous with uh, to be united, to be one, to be connected. And that's what we mean when we say that we are connected to God and we are connected with one another. So please turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 17 as we conclude Jesus' high priestly prayer where he is interceding on behalf of those who follow him. And as you turn there, we identify Jesus' desire that we be connected May it be encouraging to note that we have just concluded 40 days of extraordinary prayer where we have prayed intentionally that the church would be united. And so as we have spent that time praying, we today realize that those prayers have been aligned precisely with the prayers of Jesus. This morning we're going to take three passes through John 17 as we examine what I believe to be the big idea of this portion of Jesus' prayer. And it is this. The Father and the Son are connected to one another so that the church might be connected to God and connected with one another. The Father and the Son are united with each other so that the church might be united to God and united with one another. And this is the first and fundamental reality that Jesus acknowledges in this prayer is the unity between the Father and the Son. They are connected to one another. We don't even need to leave the Gospel of John to discover this. The very beginning words of John's Gospel read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In a few chapters later in Jesus' ministry, he audaciously claimed, I and the Father are one. The religious leaders who heard this claim picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy because they did not hear a comparison with God. They heard Jesus identify as God. And so here in John 17, listen to how Jesus, the Son, identifies with the Father Uh, beginning here in verse 21. 
His prayer is that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And he continues in verse 22, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me. And in verse 24, This is to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. These descriptions of the connection between the Father and the Son, I think, beg a question. In what way or in what sense are the Father and the Son connected or united or one? I think there are at least three. They're connected in their identity. There is one God and three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are co-eternal and co-equal. Though they act in distinct ways, they perfectly cooperate in concert with one another as though dancing in divine love. The second sense, perhaps, is that they are also connected in their mission. The Father sent the Son, as John 3.16 says, that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have eternal life. They have aligned on mission together. But also the Son has willingly submitted to the Father in this plan. Philippians 2 crystallizes the humility of this submission when it speaks of Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And further, they're united in their mission because they send the Holy Spirit to indwell those God has saved for the success of this mission. In John 14, 26, Jesus says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So they're connected in their identity. They're connected in their mission. They're also connected in their love. The love between the Father and the Son is infinite and eternal. When one succeeds, the other succeeds. And thus, likewise, their glory is mutual. When one is glorified, the other is glorified. And they serve to glorify each other. Their mutual love makes possible their mutual glory. Now, I begin this way. Because this matters. It matters theologically. This is a theological issue, the relationship, the unity between the Father and the Son. Their oneness is particularly and distinctly Christian. Other major world religions are defined by the relationship between the Father and the Son. But the gospel of other religions, if there is one is not the same as the gospel of Jesus Christ that we believe, that Jesus died and rose again in accordance with the scriptures to reconcile us to God. And so really, this is also a gospel issue. The unity of the Father and the Son is a necessary prerequisite to the gospel. We have no gospel if the Father and the Son are not united. In fact, if they're not connected in perfect unity, I think we probably have bad news instead of good news. The father becomes cruel or abusive, forcing his unwilling son to die 
And thus, God is not someone that you want to be reconciled to. Or, the son who perhaps willingly came to earth decides for himself that the unjust death at the hand of evil men doesn't sound that fun, doesn't sound worth it. And he forces the father to let the cup pass from him. In that scenario, God would not be someone that you could trust. But in fact, they are united. The source of greatest delight is to be reconciled to a God that you can trust. And the good news is that you can, because the Father and the Son have aligned themselves in one, in unity, and they willingly cooperate with each other in the work of salvation. But perhaps more than a theological issue or a gospel issue, this is also a practical issue. Jesus prays here that we would be one as the Son and the Father are one. So the relationship between the Father and the Son doesn't just make relationship with God possible, it also informs what that relationship looks like as we live it out with one another. And it directly informs the same things. It's a just as statement, a comparison statement. It informs our oneness in identity our oneness in our mission, and our oneness in our love. Throughout church history, this issue has been so important that the church has even divided over it. In 325 AD, the Nicene Creed was written to settle one of these divisions, providing a belief statement for the Christian, for the church, to unite around. The unity of the Father and the Son was of utmost importance. It defined what it meant to belong to God. And the Nicene Creed begins as such. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. And it continues, the next phrase begins, for us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven. Literally, all of our hope depends on the unity of the Father and the Son. In perfect unity, they are the source of the good news that we have responded to in Jesus. Now, in this prayer to the Father in John 17, Jesus assumes this unity. He believes that already this is common knowledge, and he believes it to be true. His prayer, then, for his people is particularly twofold, that they would be connected to God, the Father, through the Son, and that they would be connected to each other in perfect unity. And so let's look at the first of these requests. Jesus prays that the church might be connected to God. God's design, Jesus prays that the church would participate in unity with the Father and the Son. He prays this four times in four ways. In verse 21, he says that they also may be in us. And in verse 23, I in them and you in me. In both of these, Jesus' prayer is that the church would participate in the same unity 
with the Father and the Son. It is obvious uh, that the church cannot and will never be the fourth member of the Trinity, but Jesus' prayer, I think, is that it will function as such, that the church would identify with God and God's purposes, that it would participate in this cooperative concert with God, that it would partner with God in his mission and would singularly love God and be loved by God. You heard the just as there, the identity, the mission, and the love just as the Father and the Son share. And this, I think, is precisely what Jesus is praying in verse 19, which precedes this section. He says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And the same word is used and translated both consecrate and sanctify. It's another just as comparison. And it literally means to set apart. John um, mentioned last week that the church is set apart from the world, distinct from, set apart for God's purposes. This is both a categorical as well as a collective setting apart. It's different than the sanctification that we experience daily as the Holy Spirit makes us more like Christ. And so the church then is to align itself in both identity and function with the God for whose purposes it has been set apart. In other words, the church is to be connected to God. Jesus prays this same way a third time in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is literally expressing his will, his desire here, which it it sounds a little bit strange because the other gospels record the end of Jesus' life, the end of his final prayer, as really saying, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me, not what I will, but what you will. And here, the Son is not forcing the Father's hand. Both his submission to the Father and the expression of his desire are operative. And so instead, he is here expressing the very will of God. And that desire is to be with the church. I think Jesus is looking forward to a day when he will be reconciled in full with his people. And this request gives us a glimpse into eternity. Um, John mentioned uh, last week that John 17 verse 3, Jesus is describing this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And while we know today in part, one day we will know in full. And 1 Corinthians 13, 22 describes the fullness of this knowledge. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And there, physically reconciled to God through Jesus, Jesus' prayer will be answered and we will behold Jesus' glory that the Father has given him because the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. And he prays this yet a fourth and final time here, that the church would be connected to God. In verse 26, he says, So that the love with which you have loved me 
may be in them and I in them. And this, I think, is the crux of what it means to to delight in God, to be connected to God. Because this is the place of delight. Oh, to be loved by God. Oh, to be with Him, united to Him, experiencing the love that the Father has had for the Son. And Jesus is praying this for, for us. In our mission statement, the goal that we exist to engage people toward is this kind of connection. A connection that leads to the place of delight where you are connected and reconciled to God through Jesus. The relationship, however, between the church's connection to God and the church's connection to one another is not now a mere correlation, as though the two kind of happen together but independently. Jesus prays here, identifying that they are causal, that connection to God causes a connection to one another. And so here's the gospel. Instead of a saying, me just saying, y'all need to get along now, I expect that as we examine the gospel closely this morning, as we delight in the connection that we have with the Father through the Son, that it will necessarily produce unity with one another. And so Jesus also prays now that the church would be connected to one another. Again, that the church would experience unity and oneness as the Father and the Son do. This is... This is the necessary conclusion of being connected to God. And here at New Life Church, when we talk about being connected, we say the gospel, the vertical connection, creates community, a horizontal connection. Or our faith in Christ leads us to love and value one another. Jesus prays for this at length in two different places here. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Notice that Jesus isn't just praying for the people who are overhearing him pray. He's now praying explicitly for you. He's praying for his people today as he is then. His fundamental request is that they may all be one. And that request is qualified by the statement, or explained by the statement, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And that's why we began this morning examining, giving close attention to the relationship between the Father and the Son, who are united in in their identity, in their mission, and in their love. And Jesus goes on to pray in verses 22 and 23, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. The glory referred to here is likely Jesus' revelation of the supreme excellence of the Father, particularly expressed through his life and his word. And the goal of that revelation, as we know God the Father through Christ the Son, the goal of that revelation is that we might be united, perfectly united. 
And that word that he uses here at the end of verse 23 is, it, it means what it says, perfectly united, not kind of united, not mostly united, not partially united, perfectly united. A, a unity that is of maturity, a unity that is complete and whole, lacking no division. And the model for that unity is, as we have already discussed, the unity between the Father and the Son. Their identity, their mission, their love are perfectly one, and so it is to be in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, the answer to this prayer, um, well, first off, it, it, it sounds, it's the piece of Jesus' prayer here that sounds uncertain. Um, make them one, because otherwise it probably won't happen. But this is guaranteed then by the presence of the Holy Spirit who dwells in each Christian and his presence, his purpose is directly and paramountly to fix our attention to Jesus, to call to mind all that he has said and all that he has revealed about his Father, which connects us now to each other. This connection to God that the Spirit reminds us of connects us to one another. And now here is where the rubber meets the road. Because, frankly, we like the idea of being one. The, the idea of unity, living at unity with someone, finally sounds really refreshing. But we're so bad at it. Even as we hear these words today in our present context, we are at a crossroads in American culture, we are at a crossroads in the culture of the church and there are two huge factors. The first is that we have, we have never been as isolated as we are at present. A global pandemic has forced us into our homes, literal isolation. And so then, in that place, all of our processing of the world around us, all of our formulation of ideas and opinions is coming in a vacuum. In a vacuum in which we are looking and listening to sources that will affirm our bias and further isolate us from others. Also, all of our engagement with God is happening in, happening in a vacuum. Fortunately, life groups are continuing to meet. We're, we're meeting in people's backyards as the weather allows, and we'll be meeting again in person indoors soon as the rain approaches. But all of that has even been happening in a vacuum. So my ideas about God are formed by myself in my own personal reading rather than in the context of the relationship with other believers. But perhaps one of the second reasons we're at a crossroads is because perhaps we've never had as many threats to the unity of the church as we have today. And these threats are particularly inflammatory. Even as I, as I make you think about what those threats might be, the hair on your neck starts to tingle, uh, you start to speculate about what issues I'm referring to and what my position is or what the church's position is on these things. Ugh, so I'm going to expose some of those threats. And I want to point us to unity together in Jesus. One of those threats is uh, that we are entering a very heated and polarizing election season. And now this is polarizing for the country. 
But what's happening is that the country, the nation itself, uh, the poles within this nation are pulling the church toward either end of the spectrum. And there are people here in our midst who identify with the party of the elephant. And there are people in our midst who identify with the party of the donkey. Instead of identifying with Jesus. Over and against identifying with Jesus. And I want to remind you that your primary and fundamental identity is that you belong to the party of the Lamb. Your king has died to make you his. Your king has wooed you with promises and he has kept all of them. Your king wants to know you and be known by you. Your king is not American. And so Jesus prays for us today that we would be united to him and consequently to each other. Another threat to our unity is that we are thinning toward the edges on the reality of systemic racism and the need for social justice. And again, this is how our nation is divided on these issues. And we are being pulled into one of those two directions. Either bending the knee to the God of the progressives in the demand for social justice or bending the knee to the God of the founders in the need for personal morality and accountability. Instead of identifying with Jesus. You see, each side of the issue here claims to have God behind its cause. God supports social justice. God supports morality and accountability. And we have got that all backwards. The church has been set apart for God's purposes. God has not been set apart for the church's purposes. And so this morning, would you, would you aim at Jesus and say, let Jesus' cause be my cause. And to the degree that these issues are, I engage in that way. Jesus prays for us today that we would be united to him and consequently to each other. There's another threat, and this threat is perhaps even related to our health. We side with the loudest voice that agrees with us on the nature of this pandemic. And again, this is an identity issue. Some of you identify with immunologists and live in respect or perhaps even fear of this virus, but some of you identify with a politician or an ideology and live in speculation or denial that COVID-19 is even a reality. Our identity, again, then is misplaced. We have been set apart for God, for his purposes. And being a people who belong to God during a pandemic is really, really quite simple, actually. His purpose is that his people would love their neighbor as themselves that they would honor the emperor, that they would be connected to God and therefore connected to one another. And it isn't love for neighbor that wears a mask in the grocery store and then derides every person out there with a mask on in public. It's not honor to obey the mandates when you're hungry and then go home and ridicule those who are in authority over you. It's not pursuing connection to God or unity with one another to isolate yourself beyond the mandates that the state has provided or overstep those mandates that the state has provided. No, Jesus prays for us today 
that we would be united to him, aligned with his cause, and consequently to each other. So what are we to do? What, is, what are some strategies that we might use as spirit-empowered people uh, to aim and strive for unity together? And I think that there are three resets. There are three reset buttons on the unity of the church that ought to be pushed here. The first is to reset your identity. All the issues that I've mentioned just a moment ago, I tied to our identity as people who have been set apart for God's purposes. We belong fundamentally and foremost to him. You follow Jesus, not a political party. You follow Jesus' cause, not the cause of a social issue. You obey Jesus, not acting out of fear or flippancy. And so identify with Jesus in his humility and his unity with the Father. Philippians 2, 1 through 8 really describes this unity that we are to have with one another as we reset and shape our identity based on what Christ has done, who he is, and the unity he has with the Father. And this passage in Philippians really is the exhortative version of Jesus' prayer in John 17. And Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." This mind is not something that we are going to think of outside of ourselves. We have this mind in Christ Jesus. Our identity in Christ affords us, provides us with a mind that is united to God's people. So we need to reset our identity, make the main thing the main thing, be connected first and foremost to God through Jesus. The second is to reset our calendar. And I mentioned uh, this booklet. There's a page in here. It's available online or in physical form um, where there are three things, three, three ways that we envision this kind of unity playing itself out in the church. And the first is to commit to the people in your life group. So I will ask the question, are you in a life group? This is one of the ways that we practice and embody the answer to Jesus' prayer in our life groups. These are small bands of disciples doing life together. The second is to show hospitality and share meals together. In our, in our present context, admittedly, this takes a lot more creativity than it used to, but there is so much value in sharing a meal together, pausing life, doing a common human activity that everyone has to do, and doing it together. But the most important part of this, perhaps, this statement is that hospitality is defined as welcoming the other. 
It's not a social club where everyone is acting um, or interacting with people who are just like them or have shared interests or shared hobbies. It's welcoming someone who is other than you, who sees the world differently than you do. And the third way we envision this working in the church is that we are close enough to one another to frustrate each other. Uh, I would add to that, and I would say, um, for the sake of unity, just if, stop unnecessarily frustrating each other. But this level of relationship doesn't happen by accident. You'll need to make space in your calendar for this to happen. And then the third reset button is to reset our filter. As we aim at God's purposes, the clarity with which the Bible speaks on these issues helps us to filter the issues of our day and think about the things that we are, we're going to make a big fuss about or, or pursue unity in, in an appropriate way. I found a very helpful filter for viewing these issues um, in these four categories. <clears throat> there are decide for issues. These are issues of simple deference. Um, the, the color of paint in the bathroom or the size of the TV in the lobby. Uh, there are debate for issues. And those are issues that justify a dialogue that you would perhaps even defend, such as a political party or a social issue, or um, perhaps the method by which God created the world. And, and I'd argue here that all of the social issues, all of the threats to our unity that I've mentioned a moment ago, really belong in one of these two categories, decide for or debate for. The problems come when we misplace them. The third category is divide for. And these are issues that would cause you to be unable to worship with another person, such as perhaps the nature of baptism or the manifestation of the spiritual gifts, issues that are much larger that say, we're actually not really even in the same camp anymore, and not a political camp but in a camp that has been defined by God as uh, according to his word. And then the fourth and final category are die-for issues, which are issues of such magnitude that you would become a martyr willingly in defense of their truth, such as the nature of the gospel or the certainty that God wins in the end. You know what I would die for? You know what belongs in that category? a church that is marked by supernatural unity. You know who has already died in order that the church might be marked by supernatural unity? Jesus. And here's why all of this matters to Jesus. The mission of the Father and thus the mission of the Son and thus the mission of the church depend on the unity of the church with one another. Jesus prays these things in order that the mission of God might succeed. Look with me at verses 21 and 23. I pray that they may all be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In verse 23, I pray this so that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. Fundamentally, the world doesn't know. The world doesn't believe. Jesus says as much in verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. How are they going to know? How are they going to believe that the Father has sent the Son? 
by the witness of a united church. The primary means by which the mission of Jesus is experienced is through the witness of a church that is connected to God and consequently connected to one another. Do you want to see a revival? Then be united to one another. Do you want to see your friend connect to God through Jesus? Then be connected to one another. Do you want to see people from every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation reconciled to God? Then be reconciled to one another. At any cost, at all cost, just as the Father is connected to the Son, be connected to God and be connected to one another. Would you please pray with me? Oh Jesus, we pray as you have already prayed, aligning our wills with yours. Would you make us one, just as you and the Father are one? We need to be rewired and renewed daily as we fix our affection and identity in you. Please help us. Please do not withhold the, from us the means by which we might experience the answer to your prayers for us. And it is for your sake and for the sake of the world that we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.